1: It's the early morning of the 23rd of March 1902 in Sydney, Palm Sunday. After a fine night, a clear day is dawning. The weather might be shaping up to be good, but in the past couple of years, Sydney has really been through the ringer. The city's had to deal with sending more and more men off to the increasingly futile Boer War. It's suffered an outbreak of bubonic plague that's exposed shameful living conditions for many citizens, and it's endured the ongoing effects of a harsh drought that's made Federation rather bittersweet. Now, the plague has returned, with authorities belatedly trying to exterminate swarms of rats that seem to infest every nook and cranny. If Sydney's had any example of triumph over adversity these past few months, it's been the mighty Ben-Hur, which has just finished its fifth week at Her Majesty's Theatre. Many said it couldn't be staged because it was too big and or too blasphemous but they were proved wrong on opening night. The show was spiritually sensitive and sensationally spectacular. A success top to bottom. But then Ben-Hur had to survive its own brush with bubonic plague. After closing for a week, it came back better than ever. What didn't kill it had made it stronger. 27-year-old Sydney sider Bella Pye might share that sentiment. She's been through the wars, and she's nothing if not a battler. Bella's just taken a job as a servant at Gaffney's Bakery on Market Street in the shadow of Her Majesty's Theatre. Her life wasn't really meant to be like this. Back in April 1897, this Harris Park lass married James Pye. Nicknamed Baron, he was a well-known footballer and cyclist from a respected Parramatta family. Bella and Baron had a son just six months after their wedding, suggesting theirs was a marriage of necessity. A few months into 1898 baron had a bad fall from his bike and soon after that he was stricken with consumption baron died in august 1898 as a young widow with a baby son bella might have expected to be taken in by the Pye family perhaps she was at first but then they were dealing with a succession of tragedies james's younger brother who was also a popular young parramatta football player died suddenly in 1899 leaving his own young widow with a child. The Pye family matriarch then died in 1901 at just 56. The Pye family's grief and turmoil could have been the reason that Bella and her infant son went to live with her mother in Paddington. Bella has to hope that her fortunes will change. To this end, she's recently got a copy of her dead husband's grandfather's will, thinking there might be some provision in it for her son now that Mrs Pye is also deceased. Any inheritance might even fulfil the promise that Bella keeps on her person in the form of a golden horseshoe brooch inscribed with the words, Good luck. But Bella Pye's luck hasn't changed yet. Around the time ben heard closed due to plague, Bella took this job as a servant at Gaffney's bakery. Her role involves sleeping over some nights in a little room upstairs at the rear of the building. Now, in her quarters, at quarter past six this Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, the 23rd of March, Bella Pye is woken up by her boss's daughter. Bella has to get up, get dressed and get out, because Her Majesty's Theatre is on fire. I'm Michael Adams and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode The Plague Returns. At 11 o'clock the previous night, Ben-Hur's chorus waved their palms on the slopes of Mount Olivet and sang the anthem, Jesus of Nazareth. The curtain came down and the audience roared. An hour later, the cast and crew had gone home. The horses and the real camel had been taken away to their stables for the weekend. In the early hours of Palm Sunday, the cleaners got to work inside Her Majesty's Theatre, with measures they'd been using to prevent the recurrence of bubonic plague. All the carpets were taken up and taken to a cellar in the front of the building. They were hung on huge lines and fumigated with sulphur. The whole theatre was sprinkled with corrosive supplement. The disinfection regime took hours. By around 5.30am, the last cleaner had left. Now, the night watchman had sole charge of the building. He had a brief visit from his wife, who was on her way home from staying overnight with a sick friend. After she left, about ten past six... The watchman thought he could hear a tap in the backstage area. When he got there, he didn't find running water, but instead a fire burning out of control. The flames were already way beyond what he could do with the water-filled fire buckets that were dotted around the theatre. The watchman ran to the telephone, but it didn't work, its wires perhaps already fused. A few vital minutes had elapsed before he got outside onto the street and called from the fire brigade's telephone box on the corner. Inside Her Majesty's Theatre, the back and understage areas, which were filled with scenery, props, costumes, equipment, electrical machinery, became a huge reservoir of fuel for the fire, whose flames were fed oxygen by the cavernous theatre, as surely as if it was a gigantic bellows. Just after the GPO's tower clock told quarter past six, the telephone rang at the Metropolitan Fire Brigade headquarters and the alarms were sounded. Within a minute, a hose carriage was clattering along Castlereagh Street, pulled by a team of galloping horses. Stations from all around – George Street West, Circular Quay, Darlinghurst and Paddington – also sent crews. The only hope for saving Her Majesty's Theatre was Big Ben. This was the state's largest and most powerful steam-powered fire engine. Big Ben could shoot water hundreds of feet into the air. By the time the firemen arrived, the Inferno already had hold of Her Majesty's Theatre, with flames shooting 30 feet above its roof. The building was one of the city's tallest, so this unfolding disaster could be seen all around Sydney. At 6.20am, at his home at Caraba Wharf at Neutral Bay, Ben Hur's director, Mr Henry Hyam Vincent, was awoken by a phone call to tell him about the blaze. Looking out across the harbour, he could see it for himself. With hoses from Big Ben, firemen rushed through Her Majesty's grand iron gates and to the doors that led to the dress circle and stalls. Opening them was to see the theatre was filled with smoke and the stage was fully ablaze. With the doors open, air was rushing into the building and feeding the fire. So the firemen either closed the doors or the wind snatched them from their grasp and they slammed. Either way, the fire was denied a fresh source of oxygen for a few minutes, but it wouldn't make any difference in the long run. Even Big Ben couldn't save Ben-Hur. The firemen knew the best they could do now was contain the fire to stop it spreading to the rest of the block. In adjoining and surrounding buildings, people had been woken by the alarms, by the screaming of fire engines and the clattering of hose carriages. In Gaffney's bakery, Bella Pye was up and getting dressed. She had her good luck horseshoe brooch firmly in hand. At Her Majesty's Hotel next door to the theatre, residents scrambled to wake each other, collect their baggage and get out into Pitt Street. Flames were soaring above the hotel and some of the six-floor rooms were being destroyed by fire. It looked like the whole building was going to go up. But firemen were on hand, rushing in with hoses. As they were fighting the flames, they heard from the fifth floor a woman crying out, Save my birdie! The deputy superintendent named, of all things, Sparks, ordered her to get out, saying that her life was more valuable than the bird's. She wouldn't listen and had to be taken downstairs. Then the woman came back up, screaming they had to save her canary. Back down she was taken, and back up she went, screaming for that birdie. Realising they'd met their match, a fireman found the canary in its cage and handed it over. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, she emerged into Pitt Street in triumph. Because the fire at her Majesty's had happened so early and so suddenly, the crowd on hand for this theatre's final act numbered just a few hundred sleepy and half-dressed souls. While productions had been scored by orchestras and operatic choruses, the soundtrack was now the shouted orders of firemen, the puffing and snorting of steam engines at full pressure, the smashing of glass and the crashing of collapsing bricks. But the actual drama of the inferno was playing out away from human eyes. From the street, all you could see was thick smoke and the occasional flare of flame above the roof. It was quite eerie that Her Majesty's Theatre facade looked just as it had done these past weeks. The graceful ferns stood untroubled in the entrance and the colourful billboard posters still heralded the glory of Ben-Hur. But inside, everything was on fire and in collapse. There was a roar as the roof of Her Majesty's Theatre caved in. This smothered much of the fire, which had already consumed most of what was flammable. Then there was another ear-shattering crash, heard as far away as Paddington, when the eastern wall of the theatre collapsed onto smaller businesses along Market Street. Next to go was the northern wall, fire department superintendent Webb and some firemen and constables just getting clear of an alley before tons of rubble cascaded down. Three other firemen were lucky to escape with minor injuries when the roof they were working on collapsed beneath them. By 7.30 or so, the show was over, but for the cleaning up. Her Majesty's theatre was gutted and ruined. Ben-Hur was no more. A few other buildings had been badly damaged by falling walls and tons of water, but it could have been so much worse. With any sort of wind, the whole block would have gone up. Receiving the terrible news via telegram in Melbourne, J.C. Williamson reportedly said, Thank God it did not occur during a performance. He might have been thinking of the Theatre Royal fire in Devon, England in 1887, where 186 people had been killed in the flames and the panicking stampede. At least no lives had been lost this Palm Sunday morning. But around 11 o'clock, it was noted that Bella Pye wasn't among those who'd gotten out of Gaffney's Bakery. Her friends and colleagues contacted her mother in Paddington, hoping she'd simply made her way home. But Bella wasn't there. Firemen now frantically began shifting the tons of rubble from where Her Majesty's eastern wall had come down on Gaffney's rear buildings. They found Bella Pye crushed to death in the kitchen. In her right hand, she still held that golden horseshoe brooch. Much would be made of this detail beyond the awful irony of her terribly bad luck. One report said Bella had been out on the street safe and sound, but with no way to know that the wall was going to collapse, for it was obscured by smoke, she'd foolishly rushed back inside to retrieve this trinket. Yet Miss Gaffney, who'd woken Bella, said she believed Bella had not made it outside. She believed she'd gone downstairs to the kitchen either to retrieve that will or to wake up men she didn't realize had already escaped. Either way, that was where Bella had died. In this version, which seemed more credible, Bella had been acting to secure her son's future or to try to ensure that other workers survived. The destruction of Her Majesty's Theatre was a huge story. The evening news describing it as, quote, one of the most sensational fires in the history of Sydney's greatest conflagrations. As with the bubonic plague, the city's highest profile visitor was once again the most prominent victim, the Sydney Morning Herald saying, Ben-Hur, which began with a blaze of success, ended with a blaze of disaster. JC Williamson was again the personification of this tragedy. To his credit, he immediately said the most devastating aspect of the disaster was Bella Pye's death, but the newspaper focus soon turned to his financial losses. J.C. Williamson had only been insured for about £2,200, so the direct hit he took just in terms of property was at least £6,000. But that didn't include lost ticket revenue for Ben Hur, or, as the sole lessee of the theatre, all the revenue he'd miss out on for the next 12 months of his disturbed theatrical program. Adding those in, the loss was said to climb to the vicinity of £15,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's £2.2 million. But by using the price of bread then versus now, it was about twice that. J.C. Williamson was a rich man, and he'd bounce back. But things would be far tougher for the 500 people who'd been employed by Ben Hur. Many artists and musicians suffered the most. They'd lost more than their jobs. Their plans, designs, equipment, instruments, they'd all been in the building and were now ashes. When J.C. Williamson reached Sydney two days later, he followed what was called the New York practice of talking to all reporters at the same time, what we now call a press conference. He said that Ben-Hur was meant to have run until the 20th of April. Restaging it any time soon was simply out of the question. J.C. Williamson said he was contemplating moving the English actors into the Theatre Royal and putting on a show to keep as many people employed as possible. The problem was, they had nothing prepared, and nor were scenery or costumes available. An inquest into Bellapie's death was held that week. It was unable to pinpoint the cause of the blaze. The management, the cleaners, and the night watchmen all denied, respectively, that there'd been any electrical faults, that the fumigation chemicals could have started the fire, or that anyone had been smoking on the premises in the hours before the blaze. In the wake of the fire, there were more general questions about preventing such disasters in the future. One newspaper letter writer wanted to know whether chemical compounds had been found that were better than water for extinguishing fires. Another one suggested that some sort of overhead sprinkler system might help check blazers before they got out of control. There was a lot of hand-wringing too about what would have happened if the theatre had been full. In typical fashion, Sydney's mayor said the city council would be protesting to the state government that they presently had no legal way to ensure theatres had sufficient exits in case of a fire. In these days of bubonic plague blame-gaming, that kind of reaction seemed par for the course. But what was beyond the pale was a remarkably callous column from a writer calling himself Saladin in the leader newspaper out at Orange. His piece was called The Roasting of Her... For the record, Her was spelt H-U-R, not that it made too much difference because Saladin had two targets, Ben-Hur and Bella Pye. He said a friend of his thought God had first sent the plague to smite the show for its blasphemy, and when people didn't take the hint, God had then burned the theatre down. Now, Saladin said he didn't necessarily agree with that, except that, well, clearly he did. He thought the play's hint of the saviour and depiction of lepers had been objectionable, blasphemous and, quote, if this terrible fire is to be attributed to the intervention of any supernatural agency, it may be regarded as a distinct blessing and benefit to the city of Sydney. Saladin claimed that case after case of plague had been attributed to Her Majesty's Theatre and it was likely the building had been, quote, seriously, if not permanently, impregnated. For the record, there actually only been two cases and two more nearby. But not letting the facts stand in his way, Saladin said Her Majesty's theatre destruction had been, quote, the singularly opportune and most fortunate cremation of this charnel house and central breeding ground of the bubonic plague. He said he wasn't sad that Ben-Hur couldn't be staged again for at least two years. He only wished the embargo could be 20 years. He said the one regrettable incident was the death of the woman. But this ever-sympathetic fellow said it was her own fault for running back into the bakery. Quote, “What will not a woman do for appearance? The incident recalls the case of Lot’s wife. Her Majesty’s theater had been cleansed by fire, at least in Saladin’s view. But the plague didn’t take a break in Sydney. In the week after the disaster, a dozen more people were taken to the Coast Hospital with the disease, two of them dying almost as soon as they were admitted. Despite J.C. Williamson's effort to find work for his cast, Ben Hur's leading man, Conway Turl left for London in the first week of April. As the Sunday Times reported, quote, "...the young actor must have been extremely disappointed with his Australian experience." It is seldom that an artist of 23 has an opportunity to play lead in such a production as Ben-Hur, and to have such a chance nipped in the bud when it had offered itself is doubly hard. There was little doubt about that, but Conway Turle did have a big future ahead of him in the fledgling medium that was then but a flicker in novelty Nickelodeons around the world. Of course, the destruction of Ben-Hur threw another celebrated cast member out of work. This was the real camel, that obstinate beast who'd occasionally gone her own way on stage but nevertheless endeared herself to audiences. J.C. Williamson needed to recoup costs, so he sold the real camel for £50 to the Sydney Zoological Gardens, which had been opened on fairly dodgy ground at Park in 1884. The camel, which was very tame, was predicted to be a crowd-pleaser. But this poor dromedary was going from one bubonic drama to another. Soon after she arrived, zoo animals were reported to be dying of the plague. Kangaroos, wallabies, wallaroos, birds, a deer, a possum and even a polar bear had perished. All up some 21 creatures in April and counting. Though it would turn out that the polar bear had died of other causes, the city council's health committee was asked by an alderman whether it was just a coincidence that the Ben-Hur camel had come from the plague theatre to the zoo just before the zoo suffered its outbreak. Was the real camel the cause? Dr Armstrong, the city's medical officer, said he didn't know, but he would investigate. The Daily Telegraph was sceptical, saying that unless the camel could carry a reservoir of plague in the same way it carried a reservoir of water, it made no sense that she'd been the source of contagion because it had been nearly two months since plague at Her Majesty's. The Australian Star newspaper weighed in with this strange claim. Quote, it is stated on authority that fleas do not live on camels. It seems that that dad joke curse, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits, wasn't yet a thing in 1902. For the record, camels can carry bubonic plague. But this one was free of the disease, and in any case, she'd arrived at the zoo after animals had started to die. The actual source of the outbreak? Rats. Cleansing operations uncovered a huge number of them living under the lion and tiger cages. And the zoo would be closed for the best part of two months. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping
0: investigations? Good news! Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad
1: free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In Sydney's human population, bubonic plague had tapered off in April with 22 cases. Only one of them died that month, but this was four-year-old Mary Gordon of Chippendale. She was one of six children to get plague in April. Four others made good recoveries but 14-year-old Martha James of George Street West would hover between life and death. The zoo outbreak was blamed for a new human outbreak at Waterloo in May. That month saw another 20 cases across Sydney, six that would end fatally. During May, patients died and patients got better. In the middle of the month, young Martha James's condition was reported to be improving, but by the end of May, she was back in danger again. As June got underway, the plague was finally in retreat in Sydney, but not before it got a zoo worker named Joseph Benson. He was an attendant to the Lions and Tigers. Joseph, who was his mother's sole support, had weathered the worst of the plague at the zoo. He was there until Thursday the 5th of June. On Friday, he was sick. He was admitted unconscious to the Coast Hospital and was dead by 6 o'clock on Sunday evening. The next morning, the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, His infection altogether upset the arrangements made for the reopening of the grounds on Saturday. The permission of health authorities had been obtained, but in the view of this development, Dr Ashburton-Thompson strongly advised the management to delay, and the garden's will therefore remained closed until further notice. In any event, earlier in the week, two guinea pigs had died, and they'd now been shown to have plague too. This horrible new development led to a special meeting at Redfern Council. There, Alderman Stanley drew attention to the many complaints about the zoo from locals. They were suffering bad smells from the animals and also from the slaughterhouse where old horses were killed to feed the carnivores. The Alderman said the zoo was too small to keep animals in good health and this posed a danger to people living nearby. Other councils, Alderman Stanley said, had complained of these same problems. Now that the plague had attacked animals and killed an attendant, it was high time for the government to take action for the speedy removal of the zoo to a, quote, more commodious and in every way better suited site. The Alderman called for Sydney, Paddington, Randwick and Waterloo councils to join Redfern in lobbying the Premier to take immediate steps to move the zoo. The motion was carried. Asked his opinion about this proposal, Dr. Ashburton Thompson told the Sydney Morning Herald that, apart from the question of plague, if the zoo was kept in sanitary condition, it wasn't a health threat. Moving it would cost several thousand pounds. But Dr. Ashburton Thompson did admit it was too small, that the soil wasn't suitable for growing plants and flowers, which he said should be part of any zoological gardens, and yes, the cages were defective. But all of these issues could be solved if the zoo had more funds at its disposal, so it didn't need to be shifted. As for the plague question, he did believe infected rats had made their way into the local human population and had spread the plague. So the zoo had to be made rat-proof, which could be done by sinking a fence to a depth of two feet all around the gardens. Once that was done, plague should no longer be a problem. By the time Dr Ashburton Thompson was giving this interview, The 9th of June, there had been 136 cases and 37 deaths. A Waterloo housewife was diagnosed and died in the middle of that week. By the 16th of June, though, Sydney had gone three successive days without a new case. On the 24th of June, there'd still been no further cases. All patients who were at the Coast Hospital were progressing favourably. Everyone except Martha James. On the 27th of June, she died after battling the plague for more than two months, which was quite extraordinary given it usually killed people within days. Young Martha was Sydney's final victim in the 1902 outbreak. In total, the Board of Health was notified of 140 cases and 39 people died. That was 27%, so ultimately closer to one in four than one in three. It's tempting to think that this was the result of better medical treatment, but as we'll see, there were worse ratios ahead. As for the overall outbreak, it was just under half of what it had been in 1900. So was this good management or good luck? Certainly, the initial response had been chaotic. Though during autumn and into winter, the various authorities did get their acts together. It's not clear how many rats were killed at the start of March in the rat crusade, or during subsequent operations of a similar nature. But what does seem evident is that the actual number of rats infected was very small. In June, the Board of Health announced that it had examined 8,000 rats since the 1st of April, which was the tail end of the plague. Only 64 of these rodents had had bubonic plague. So by that stage, Eusinia pestis had only infected four-fifths of 1% of rats in Sydney. Even if the city had been home to half a million, which seemed entirely possible, only about 4,000 would have been infected. The chances of being bitten from a flea from one of these was then relatively small. Though officials had taken too long to act... When they and the city's citizens had succeeded in killing perhaps tens of thousands and, more importantly, had also denied them feeding opportunities and destroyed many breeding grounds, this would have curbed the otherwise exponential growth of these pests. It wasn't complete eradication, but it appeared to be enough. On the 1st of July, the Board of Health declared the Port of Sydney free of plague, no new cases having been detected for more than three weeks. The next day, the Sydney Morning Herald printed an editorial called The Lesson of the Plague. While reviews of Ben-Hur had been glowing, they were nothing compared to this boosterism. Quote, The authorities are heartily to be congratulated on the termination of the recent infliction. They have taken strong measures to meet what may be called accidents of the plague. When it broke out, they were instant with excellent means for confining its ravages and for clearing parts of the city in which it appeared. There was no question of care or money here. Wherever the plague made its dreaded appearance, men worked under the guidance of experts to expel the cause and to disinfect and generally cleanse the quarters concerned. Sydney owes a debt of gratitude to the city council and to all the agencies employed by it directly or indirectly for the zeal and energy with which this terrible enemy of the human race was met. Under capable direction, infected areas were purified, a valuable crusade was made against the rats, the bearers of infection, and a wholesome fear of dirt and neglect was implanted in the hearts of the citizens. Not a word then about the authorities who'd allowed bubonic conditions in the first place and who'd then taken such an initially scattershot approach to stopping the epidemic. The Sydney Morning Herald, though, did ask how many more times the city would be visited by plague. It predicted, quote, There is more than a chance that these attempts will be seriously lessened in extent and value once it is announced that the plague is at an end. Thereby, much harm will possibly be done. If we want to keep the plague away from our port, we must maintain the war against rats, maintain it regularly and systematically. This means little from a financial point of view, but we stand to lose heavily if by neglecting rational precautions we leave the door open for another visitation of the plague. Was the door left open? Perhaps not fully, but it was certainly ajar. In the middle of winter 1903, bubonic plague recurred, though there were just two non-fatal cases. 1904 was worse. From March to December, there were 13 cases, 7 ending in death, the mortality rate exceeding 50%. 1905 saw 56 cases and 21 deaths, which was right on the 1-in-3 ratio. In 1906, 20 cases for 8 deaths. 1907 was 48 and 18. 1908, 8 cases, 4 deaths. It seemed there was a pattern, a mild year followed by a more severe one, which suggested an ebbing and flowing of sanitary and preventative measures, though the overall trend was towards plague's elimination. On the 17th of April 1912, Sydney's The Sun newspaper carried the terrible story of a disaster that would see the blame game played for the rest of human history. With the news still breaking, the headline for the moment read, Titanic's death roll, over 1,300 lives lost, only 866 survivors, alleged insufficiency of lifeboats, obsolete board of trade regulations. But in this sad and shocking issue of The Sun, there was cheering news for Sydney siders who remembered Ben-Hur. The headline, A Great Stage Spectacle, Ben-Hur, Now in Rehearsal. J.C. Williamson was bringing Ben-Hur back, this time at the Theatre Royal. Even the unsold copies of the book he'd had printed back in 1902 were on sale again, and demand was so great they quickly sold out. This time Ben Hur would be played by English actor Eric Maxson. The chariot race with galloping horses was again to thrill the crowds. But there was one role that J.C. Williamson was having trouble filling. He needed a camel for his drama. That herd of dromedaries out at Burke that had supplied the star animal in 1902 was no more. As the referee newspaper reported on the 24th of April 1912... Wires have been sent to Adelaide and Broken Hill in the hope of securing one. It is a search against time, as the drama is due for production on May the 4th. Of course, J.C. Williamson only really had to look in his own backyard, or at least a mile or so away at the zoo, which was still in those cramped Park grounds. Ben-Hur's original, real camel was still resident, and she was rented to J.C. Williamson for this reboot. Clearly the old beast didn't need much in the way of rehearsals because she only left the zoo on the Thursday afternoon before the Saturday opening night. The camel was seen, rider aloft, plodding along through Darlinghurst, which was now a thoroughfare where automobiles coexisted with horses. A great crowd cheered her on. The Land newspaper, doing the usual gender assumption thing, reported of this triumphant comeback, quote, Unlike his human colleagues, he does not appear any older than when he took part in it ten years ago. But the camel was as ornery as ever. During the full-dress rehearsal, she lay down on the stage and refused to budge. As the Sydney Mail reported, quote, "'Coaxing, kirxing and beating were of no avail. He steadily refused to move, and for three solid hours he held up the rehearsal and nearly drove the producers insane.'" At last, evidently satisfied that he had established his importance sufficiently in the eyes of all concerned, he condescended to allow the rehearsal to proceed. Ben-Hur opened his scheduled. The show was a splendid success, and it was untroubled by fleas and flames. But the camel ran her own show. One night after conveying an actress to the stage and kneeling down, she wouldn't move, so the actors had to jump over her as they entered and exited stage. Ben-Hur had a colossal run right through until early December. Then the real camel went back to the zoo. Four years later, in September 1916, she was again in the Sydney streets and in the news sheets. This time walking to Circular Quay for a boat to take her to her new home at newly opened Taronga Zoo. Soon after that, she was the star of a theatrical day at the zoo that was attended by the premier, assorted politicians and well-known Sydney actors and producers who celebrated her, though they called her Ben, as a one-part player. That seemed a little unfair given everything she'd been through. Just as the camel found a new generation of fans in a new venue, so did her old 1902 co-star Conway Turl. After returning to England for more stage work, he went to America in 1905 and reprised his role as Ben-Hur in a 1908 production. By 1914, he was making movies, and by 1916, he was a leading man on his way to, for a time being, Hollywood's highest paid star. Sydney siders who wanted to see him now could see him on the silver screen. Like Conway and the camel, 1902's other star player, the villain Bacterium Yersinia pestis, kept putting in appearances in Sydney. One hundred years ago, at the start of November 1921, plague rats were again found in the city, right where they'd begun their long run, Sussex Street. The day after the race that stops a nation, The Sun's editorial was headlined Citizenship and Plague. It began, quote, Had the Sydney citizens put but one-tenth of the thought and money into fighting the Black Plague, which they put into the Melbourne Cup, Sydney would not have a rat left in her. The Sun said the Board of Health was working tirelessly to keep the city safe, but citizens had betrayed it by allowing rubbish to build up everywhere. The first human case was reported at the end of November. He was a 45-year-old storeman who worked at Sussex Street, and he died three days later. Over the next six months, there'd be 34 cases in the city, Redfern, Randwick, Glebe, Paddington, Oollamaloo, Alexandria and Surrey Hills, and another nine people would die. 39,000 rats would be destroyed during this period. While the Sun no doubt had a point about people creating conditions conducive to rat breeding, authorities also had to share in the blame for not enforcing laws. During this 1921-1922 purge, photos were taken of Camperdown that might have rivalled those taken at the rocks in 1900. Pictures showed refuse-filled yards, filthy laneways, dilapidated housing and sprawling open rubbish dumps. By the middle of 1923, it had been nearly 12 months since the last infected rat had been found in Sydney. Then, On the 27th of June, Wilfred James Court, a 22-year-old clerk who still lived with his parents in Camperdown, started to feel sick. He was seen by a doctor on the 30th of June and died shortly afterwards. Post-mortem analysis confirmed he'd perished of bubonic plague. Rat-killing efforts were stepped up, with 500 a week being exterminated and examined in Sydney's inner west. No infected rats were found, and no other cases were reported. The source of Wilfred Court's infection remained unknown, and he would be Australia's last confirmed death from bubonic plague. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode was made with the use of digitised newspapers found at the National Library of Australia's Marvellous Trove database, and with reference to the original medical register of Sydney plague cases. Family information about plague victims Graham McIntyre and Bella Pye was found in genealogical records at ancestry.com.au. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, by becoming a supporter, you can access more than half a dozen exclusive original episodes not available on general release. These shows are full-length and ad-free and cover a whole range of subjects, from Arthur Conan Doyle's kooky spiritualist tour of Australia to the strange Blue Mountains murder that was related to Sydney's infamous razor wars. Anyway, you can support Forgotten Australia from just a few bucks a month and your contributions go towards research materials, as you'll hear in upcoming episodes. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash forgotten Australia and this link is also in the show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and here's to a better 2022.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.